0: The video footage set before us is that of a mushroom cloud rising above the coastline city of Hiroshima, Japan. And it's a fake. Composite imaging. We've been lied to again. Are you surprised? I'm not. Our world is ruled by chronic liars, also obelisk-worshipping sociopaths. In conclusion, the camera lies. The camera has always lied. Our slave masters love the camera. The camera can do almost nothing but lie. From here on out, you are free to continue binge-watching Marvel or Harry Potter films in the Barracoon and believe that they are real, or in the very least, wish more than anything that they were. I won't try to stop you. If the cinematic universe describes the desires of your heart, then this episode is not intended for you. Wrong exit. Return to the interstate post-haste and continue on with the mass migration of humanity. The truth is a treasure. And I'm tired of people trampling all over it, as though their preference for the illusion were indeed nothing. Should you happen to be seeking the truth, but already find yourself confused, then rest assured that the atomic bomb hoax comes to us by way of Disney and Hollywood. You shall see for yourself forthwith. This is the fourth part in a series unashamedly decrying the bomb narrative. We've covered much already. I learned something along the way, and I hope you have too. Now we are finally moving beyond the Nagasaki nonsense and turning our attention once again to Hollywood because the atomic bomb had an agent. And as you've probably already guessed, it's the United States corporate government. Rest assured that composite imaging has always been the backbone of visual effects, going all the way back to the silent film era, but even before that. What? You don't believe me? The Oxford English Dictionary defines a composite as anything made up of different parts or elements. Oxford has just described for you an overview of practically every visual effects shot created in the history of Hollywood. As the mushroom cloud rises over Japan, like the dawn of a supposed atomic era, it is so obviously clear that we're looking at composite imaging. That is, two or more frames laid over each other to create a certain effect. You can see a pair of plumes overlaid in the footage. It's fake. Special effects would look so much more real today. And besides, if it's a mushroom cloud that you're after, all you would need is enough boxes of TNT, stacked high of course. But mushroom clouds could be made with conventional explosives. The question I hope you will be asking yourself by the time this is over, is why footage of nuclear explosions are so slow. A stick of dynamite going off is violent as hell. Blink and you'll miss it, kind of like the whiz of a rocket. Have you ever thought to compare real rockets with NASA rockets? Unlike real rockets, NASA rockets have the unusual habit of just lifting off. Kind of like a Garfield balloon from the Macy's Parade on the loose. Because that's what they are. Balloons. Meanwhile, blast footage of nukes are so slow. It's almost like they took conventional explosives, rammed them at a high frame rate, and then slowed the footage down. I'm already jumping ahead of myself. But look out Mountain Film Studios' has test footage of napalm bombs being launched on a simulated Cuban missile guidance control system. Why would they film an invasion of Cuba, you ask? It was filmed for a potential fake invasion, of course. According to the same studio, their attack upon Cuba was also recorded and played back in slow motion photography for the purposes of operational analysis you have to wonder why Lookout Mountain was so obsessed with explosives at a funeral's pace. Something like 2,000 nuclear bombs have reportedly been tested between the United States and the Soviet Union. I cannot possibly get to every one of them, and I needn't have to, because on Wonderland Avenue in Hollywood Hills, there is a 100,000 square foot spook hangout once hidden from view, surrounded by an electrified fence in which practically nobody has heard of, called Lookout Mountain. As early as 1947, the United States Air Force established Lookout Mountain as a full service movie studio for the specified purpose of producing movies and photographs of nuclear tests. they tell us 1947, but that may only be because it's the year of Langley's birthday and they're leaving their calling card. The workspace included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department, and 17 climate-controlled film vaults. Also, it had a bomb shelter. How adorable. Over its short two-decade career, ending its official run in 1969, but that's a lie, the movie studio produced thousands of propaganda films. We're talking some 19,000 classified pictures for the Department of Defense and the Atomic Energy Commission. That's more movies than all the Hollywood studios combined. Speaking of which, some of Hollywood's most coveted talent arrived to have a hand in her nuclear detonations. This included scriptwriters, animators, producers, and directors. Notable spooks like John Ford, Walt Disney, Walter Cronkite, Bob Hope, Marilyn Monroe, and many others were given a clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. What kind of animators, you ask? Disney animators. Remember Ronald Reagan's alien threat speech to the United Nations? He was a regular in Laurel Canyon. To this very day, we are never shown anywhere on record where they talked about their work there. But we know what they were up to. The official story is that military and civilian filmmakers would head to the test sites in the Pacific Islands or the Nevada Desert, capture footage of exploding nukes, and then bring it back to Laurel Canyon for editing and post-production. But that's misdirection when in fact... Lookout Mountain has been dubbed the world's only completely self-contained movie studio. And even the nukes were special effects. Did they blow crap up in the desert? They wouldn't be the United States military if they didn't. In Hollywood, they call that practical effects. Also, film clips first captured and produced at Lookout Mountain appeared in Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Glove. Oh gee, I wonder which clips. Further proof that Lookout Mountain was far more than an editing and processing laboratory for nuclear bomb tests is the fact that 3D movie effects were first developed at Lookout Mountain. Which is to say, Lookout Mountain was the Pixar of its day. In my last paper, I had mentioned J.R. Ironman, the photographer who photographed the iconic scene of movie audience members wearing 3D glasses while watching the premiere of Buona Devil in Hollywood in November 1952. Ironman was in Hiroshima. For years, we were told that nobody could go back to the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands because from 1946 to 1958, mad scientists and brass had blasted the hell out of it with a combined fission of 42.2 megatons of TNT in explosive power. We are furthermore told that the natives volunteered to be displaced from their longtime home and resettled on the Rongerik Atoll where they began to starve within months. Sure, they were finally allowed to return in 1970, but then the government told them to leave again within 10 years. I've known for quite some time now that our slave masters like to screw with us, but that's messed up. Scientists claimed the reason for their second voluntary exodus was a detectable level of strontium-90 in the well water. Sure, let's go with that. Did you know that conventional explosives create mushroom clouds, but also radiation? Meanwhile, how 23 nuclear detonations at seven test sites inside the atoll, but also in the air and underwater, didn't twist and wrangle the reef to unrecognizable scraps while simultaneously transforming her into bottles of glass is never explained. Nor is the fact that plant and animal life was never obliterated. If nuclear testing wreaked havoc on the local ecosystem, then we are not shown a shred of believable evidence. When you take time to look into the Bikini Atoll for yourself, they will repeatedly remind you of the 23 detonations as part of its nuclear mythos. That is because two divided by three makes 0.666. There is also a Hiroshima connection in that the bomb was dropped at precisely 8.15 a.m. Eight plus 15 is 23, so 666 again. 23, of course, is just another play on 9-11, because the digits in the date of the false flag attack, 9 plus 11 plus 2 plus 0 plus 0 plus 1, adds up to 23. The 7 in the number of test sites is for perfection. Another date worthy of mention is Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, which was published in 1859. All four digits, 1 plus 8 plus 5 plus 9, adds up to 23. In ancient times, 23 was considered a holy number to Eris, the Greek Elohim of strife and discord. Her Roman equivalent is discordia, which, as you can plainly see, is where we pull the word discord. What makes 23 particularly unique is that numbers convey sexuality, with evens being feminine and odds masculine. If prime numbers are the most masculine, the special status may be conferred to 23, which is made up of two consecutive prime numbers and the two, the only even prime number. In college, I was a philosophy major, and my professor claimed to have personally known the selected Nobel Prize winning mathematician John Forbes Nash. You may recall the Ron Howard film A Beautiful Mind, whereas Russell Crowe plays the man. Nash was obsessed with 23, a number which featured prominently in his battle with mental illness. His breakdown supposedly began when he claimed to a friend that he had recently been featured on a cover of Life magazine disguised as Pope John the 23rd his proof being that his favorite prime number was 23. I can only presume Nash was referring to the November 10th, 1958 episode. Life, as you will recall, is a spook magazine, and I can only suspect that Nash had handlers. The Knights Templar had 23 grandmasters before the Friday the 13th hoax that advertised their demise. I have yet to make that into a podcast episode, but you can read my article on that, Shroud of Turin while Nicholas of Damascus has Julius Caesar being stabbed 23 times. The number can be traced throughout Hollywood, the most obvious being the number 23, starring Jim Carrey. The numbering of 923 in the movies is another subject entirely worthy of our attention. September 23rd specifically is regularly regurgitated as a signpost for the rebooting of society, but again, that deserves its own paper. In Star Wars... Princess Leia was being held in detention block AA-23 and is not a coincidence when you consider that George Lucas had given the name 23 to a police robot in THX 1138. 23 is an important component to the television series Lost, which must be input repeatedly into a computer to avoid an unknown fate. Other films include Die Hard with a Vengeance, whereas a train derails in Station 23. In Airport the Terrace Bomber is assigned seat 23. In the Cohen brothers' The Big Lebowski, the dude always uses lane 23 at the bowling alley. And in Monty Python's Life of Brian, crucified criminals sing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life while hung on 23 crosses. The first instance of Morse code in a post-mud flood world was utilized on the Baltimore, Washington telegraph line. Its message derived from numbers 23, 23 and read, What hath God wrought? Another fun fact is the bikini, which made its debut in 1946. Europe was experiencing its first war-free summer in nearly a decade. That is, if we discount the Cold War. And in the French Riviera, women were flocking to the beach. The bikini's father is attributed to a certain Louis Riard, and the story of its inspiration goes something as follows. The fashion designer couldn't help but notice one sunny afternoon how women would sit up and roll down their two-piece suits in order to improve upon their tan lines. What followed is a light bulb moment in which Reard soon revealed to the world everything about a girl except for her mother's maiden name. The thing is, and this is where the story is indeed strange, Reard was not the first to design the bikini. Credit is also due to Jock Haim who was in a mutual race to create the world's tiniest swimsuit. Haim named his swimsuit the Atome. A title which paid homage to the newly discovered atom and was certainly small as fabric goes, but did not reveal the navel. It is Reard's design, however, which won the day. Inspiration for his design derives from the Pacific Reef, where they split the atom. The bikini is named after the Bikini Atoll. There you have it feminine meets masculine. The Osiris phallus reinvented with a feminine body. A match made in heaven, er, on earth. Do you smell a PSYOP? I do. Women. Celebrating 75 years of the bikini and international provocation. Operation Crossroads consisted of two nuclear weapons tests in 1946, one entire year after the war came to an end. Why the pause? You will recall from a couple of episodes ago, the frantic rush which accompanied Oppenheimer and Washington brass as they rushed to push the doomsday device into the forefront of everyone's thinking despite Germany's defeat, and Japan having already been bombed to hell and back. This was undoubtedly done in order to keep the frying pan piping hot for the scripted Cold War PSYOP. So, why did they take an entire year off? Vacation, I guess, and the invention of the bikini. The North Pole is simply too cold. What better place for a suntan than the South Pacific? Sibling nuke test Abel and Baker were the first bomb tests since the Trinity hoax in July of 1945. And the first detonation since the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August. Via Small Boy and the Fat Man. Actually, the 23 kiloton air-deployed nuclear weapon, detonated on July 1st, 1946, was named Gilda after the actress Rita Hayworth, who played the character in the movie of the same name. The bomb was based upon her bombshell body. Get it? I do. And that is because the Bikini Atoll narrative is one massive joke. A sad-looking atom splits up from itself and then walks into a bar, and the bartender says, What country are we nuking today? If the purpose of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to test the result of a nuke on innocent civilians, then the purpose behind Crossroads was to investigate the effect of nuclear weapons on warships. Is that so? Let's take a look for ourselves, shall we? You will have to do an image search for yourself within the Matrix, because we have before us a picture of Baker. It was the second in line, and an underwater detonation. We are told that only 10 of the 78 positioned ships became wreckage in Baker's aftermath, none of which were vaporized. On first glance, the special effects are impressive. Then, on second glance, not so much. Remember, our word for the day is composite imaging. The blackened ships surrounding the atomic buxom phallus thingy certainly makes for clever animation. Disney would be proud. You see, the navy vessels are in the shadow of the bomb, and therefore, they are darkened. Or are they? Wait, hold on. Sunlight is being cast down from behind the photographer. So you figure something of that light should be reflected on those metallic ships. But nothing. Then why is the water not darkened too? Look closely. The water surrounding the ships, on either side of the stern and bow, is glistening in various shades of Pacific blue. But not the ships. They're black as construction paper. Now I'm confused. Are they charred from the blast? No. And you shall see why in a moment. Is there any water affected by the shadow of the bomb? Very little. Only a thick black line on the horizon. Dozens of miles beyond the Baker explosion. Have you ever stood on the beach and observed a black line like that on the horizon before? I haven't. Perhaps we are viewing the curve on a globe. I don't know. You tell me. Wait a second, is that a black naval vessel being lifted vertically with the water plume? It is. They strap livestock to the ships. This very moment, I can still hear the wretched moo from a pissed off cow. But look closer. It's not even in the funnel. Clearly, a cutout. A cutout composited on top of another cutout. So fake. Baker follows in the heels of Abel, aka Gilda an above-ground detonation some 520 feet above sea level. Knowing that very important detail, take a look at the Baker photo again. Why are there various tiki huts and other wood and straw structures perfectly intact? In Hiroshima, only the brick buildings and other reinforced structures survived. The vacation bungalows should have been burnt to a crisp. There's a sun deck floating in the water. Not even the palm trees are singed. I've seen more damage in a sudden and unexpected gust of wind. The big bad wolf should have been able to blow these over. In another thing, we see a plume of water exploding straight up into the sky while forming an immediate cumulus like mushroom as its crown. We can furthermore observe Baker completely engulfing some of the vessels, and yet the ships themselves are completely unaffected. How is that possible? I thought Baker was an underwater explosion. Why is it only creating a plume directly upward? The mushroom cloud should inform us that a vertical force of raw alchemical power is being pushed in all horizontal directions, evaporating everything in its path. And yet the ships are sitting upright, perfectly untouched by any strong surge of the supposed wave pool, despite both wind and an upheaval of water. The bomb should have caused something akin to a tsunami. Oh sure, the artist has added a neat looking white line just south of the black naval cutouts, to imply a wave is being created. But if Baker is anything like Trinity or the Fat Man Bomb, then we should see wind and skin vaporizing light being tossed at us from every side. But no. In short, we are looking at the composite image originating from a postcard photo. Was it sold at the Bikini Atoll gift shop? We are not told. If you feel the inclination to tell me, the three pigs built the vacation bungalows only after Gilda, then I will tell you to research out a picture of the Abel test. Oh, fine. How about I just do it for you? Here you go. A picture of Rita Hayworth, Gilda, in the flesh. Same palm trees, same stick and straw structures, same tanning deck for Louis Reard's bikini models. While on a reconnaissance mission within the Matrix, I tried finding a larger image for my paper, but apparently the ABLE test is an embarrassment to Google. Probably has something to do with the fact that no two nukes look the same, and also because it's yet another composite image, easily cut out from a napalm bombing range and pasted with a glue stick onto the exact same postcard as Baker. Ridiculous. Another ridiculously fake photo of Baker is that of sailors watching the nuclear warhead explode from a distant boat. How disappointed they must have been To learn that it was only a composite image and not a sunbathing Rita Hayworth. Another question you should be asking yourself is why no two nuclear blasts look the same. But we're not even talking about two separate blasts at the moment. Because this is reportedly the same blast and nothing about this blast matches the same blast from the first photo. None of the clouds match up. Notice how huge the battleship is in this image compared with the first photo. And they finally managed to create the effect of a tsunami-like wave. Even if this is a few seconds later, as seems to be implied, the mushroom cloud is smaller than the first blast, when in fact, it should be considerably larger. Why no protective gear? Nobody is wearing goggles. The man in the front isn't even wearing a shirt. Working on our tan, are we? I hear radiation does wonders. The story of Lookout Mountain takes a curious turn after the official narrative has the facility being decommissioned and sold conveniently after nuclear testing came to an end, eventually being purchased by American Indian producer Del Bertie at auction for $50,000. In my article, I've included a picture of Bertie in an episode of Saved by the Bell. Upon its purchase, Bertie discovered that the soundstage was used to shoot and produce a moon landing movie. The explanation for this is that the Air Force needed a backup video in the case of transmission failure from Neil and Buzz to ground control. Right, kind of like that Cuban Missile Crisis footage. You know, just in case. We are then told that Bertie went broke and the property was repossessed by his lender in the early 80s. It was eventually purchased by a computer developer in the mid 80s for $550,000 and then resold again in 1994 to artist Mark Lipscomb, and attorney and former judge John Lander for a sum of $750,000. All of this is indeed strange since Lookout Mountain was still listed as making movies well into the 1990s. Don't believe me? Both The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi give special optical effects credit to Lookout Mountain. Why do I get the feeling that the Death Star explosion is one such effect? And it's appropriate since Lucasfilm is obviously Intel-run today. Another movie that was filmed at Lookout Mountain was the 1987 lackluster Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. Its plot centers around the Antichrist finally bringing peace on Earth by eliminating nuclear weapons from the world. Hopefully by now, you will see how that works. Order out of chaos. Our slave masters create the problem, nukes. They then offer the solution, a one world government, as in the United Nations, and then when that doesn't work, Somebody Worthy of Disarmament. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is accredited to Lookout Mountain, but also the 1997 Michael Douglas thriller The Game. There's also The Jupiter Menace, a 1982 documentary that examines the theory that the world is doomed and nothing can be done about it. With the sequel to Bill and Ted, we are treated to Bill and Ted's MK Ultra Handler, advertised to us as a villain from the future who sends evil robot duplicates of the two prophesied rock stars through time in order to replace them. He succeeds in killing them, thereby splitting their psyche and sending them to the land of the dead, like something akin to neophytes laboring to become master builders in the mystery religions. The story of The Game centers upon an elite banker living in San Francisco, who's given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious psychodramatic exercise, His life is turned upside down when he becomes unable to distinguish between the performance witchcraft and reality. It's yet another documentary detailing the day-to-day in our construct, a plot which the spooks at Lookout Mountain would be intimately familiar with. Somebody out there on the internet, still hugging the walls of the baby blanket matrix as if a therapeutic couch depends upon it, will surely tell me that the Lookout Mountain studio making Hollywood occult movies Was completely separate from the Lookout Mountain studio making government propaganda movies. Sure, in the 60s the production company was officially referred to as the 1,352nd Photographic Group of the United States Air Force. Why Lookout Mountain Laboratory then? Because it was nestled within a hilltop in Hollywood. That little detail is important. Are we to believe another unidentified movie studio was created upon the very hilltop? Or was someone else in a neighboring valley just being silly and nostalgic? Lookout Mountain may have gone completely unnoticed by the public in the last century, but Walt Disney and George Lucas knew. Are we dealing with different buildings? Perhaps. But either way, they're the same entity. Hey, I have an idea. How about we just start up our own special effects movie company and call it Paramount or Warner Brothers? I'm sure nobody will mind. Precisely there is only one Lookout Mountain movie studio. And their special effects are to die for. The property exchanged hands again when the 8 bedroom, 12 bathroom property was sold to Jared Little for the sum of 5 million. I thought it might be a good idea to read a bio on Little at my favorite Matrix indoctrination site, the Wikipedia. And this is what I found. Jared Joseph Little was born to Constance Metrojohn in 1971, the very year that Echelon The global surveillance and intelligence collection operation run by the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Canada, and New Zealand made its official launch. His mother was of Cajun ancestry, with Leto being the surname of his stepfather. Who was his father? We are not told. His parents divorced when he was a child, and in a few short years, his father, having already remarried, committed suicide. You may recall that Leto later played the Joker in the movie Suicide Squad. Jared and his brother Shannon then lived with their mother and their paternal grandparents, Will Lee Metrojohn and Ruby Russell, frequenting different cities around the country due to the fact that his grandfather was in the Air Force. What did Metrojohn do in the Air Force? We are not told. At or around the same time, Constance joined the hippie movement. That's actually how the internet phrases it. The hippie movement interesting verbiage. We then read that she likewise encouraged her two sons to get involved. Everything I have just summed up derives from a few short sentences on the Wikipedia. They're lumping together suicide, the Air Force, and the hippie movement as something organic. When all three blended together speaks of something else entirely. It only gets better. After playing opposite Claire Danes, Alicia Silverstone, and Christine Rickey in Hollywood Productions, Leto started the group 30 Seconds to Mars, but did not allow his position of Hollywood actor to be used in promotion of the band. See what I mean? Organic. Their work then led to a number of record labels being interested in signing Leto's band, which eventually signed to Immortal Records. The company, founded by Happy Walters and Amanda Deem, also helped launch the careers of Korn and Incubus. Oh, and about the same time, Leto dated Cameron Diaz. Busy boy. The name 30 Seconds to Mars is supposedly a metaphor for the future. The fact that we're so close to something that's not a tangible idea. You know, atomic detonation. Space flight. Still not tangible. A 30 second portal to Mars? Esoterically, more probable. You will also want to make a note of the fact that Mars is the Elohim of war. But there's more. Fans of the band call themselves Echelon.